So look, I'm in Austin, Texas today. So very excited to be joined uh, by one of the original sponsors for the podcast as well. So um, thank you for welcoming into your house. We're doing our yeah. first outdoor shoot as well. So it's a bit of a challenge with the lighting, yeah. but we, we sorted it all out. So maybe just to start off with, yeah. uh, just to introduce yourself and talk about how we actually met uh, yeah. and sort of how we got to this, where we are today. Amazing. Well, one, thank you for braving the Texas heat. Summertime here, so I appreciate it. Um, how we met? Uh, I like to think of you as an internet friend. Uh, we're you know thousands of miles apart. Got introduced by a mutual friend and had a, a few uh, late night for me, early morning for you conversations about the rental industry. And um, we were at the time just getting boom and bucket off the ground, and you were a great resource for how we should think about this space. Yeah. Um, and then we've kept the dialogue going. And then uh, when sponsorship opportunities came for the podcast, we were happy to support that. Um, some of our earliest customers are large rental companies, and so we, we view it as a, a consistency in the group that we want to get closer with, and we want to support as much as possible. Um, kind of final thing that I'd say is that there's been this amazing renaissance in terms of um, the professional groups and podcasts and content coming out in these spaces that it's pushing the industry forward in a way that I don't think existed a few years ago. Mm. And so um to be associated with that it's a great joy for us as a company and exactly kind of what we're looking for from a brand perspective yeah uh, it, over the next few years there's gonna be more podcasts coming out for yeah. sure because it's such an easy way to get di a direct uh voice towards the people that you want to communicate with like i i was at united rentals the other day and they just launched their internal podcast yeah. so they're doing one every month and they're covering certain things but more and more companies uh, are going to start looking at that internal podcast and even more are going to focus on creating external podcasts where you talk to your customers. Yep. Uh, you, you were talking about doing a success case study. Yeah. That could easily be turned into a podcast. Totally. Um, so that, that sort of stuff is um, why we started it, just to share stories. And, and, and by the way, I've got to say, when I created your ad yeah. uh, on, on our space and we put it through on the audio, I reckon I had maybe five people reach out to me and said that the Boomin' Bucket name hey. was like really good. <laughs> you know, we, we had a laundry list of names and there were some good ones on there and some less than good ones. And my co-founder Samir just loved the alliteration of Boomin' Bucket, as did I. And so when we got to the bottom of that list and saw Boomin' Bucket, it was just one of those things. It just rolls clicked. off your tongue, but it's just like a, like it's, it's just there, Boomin' Bucket, sounds good. You know, and it's different. Everybody else is, is heavy, it's metal, it's iron. And certainly, you know, we, we work in that space, but we want to be slightly different, just like the brand, like it's red, white, and blue. Um, yeah. That's not a mistake. A, we're uh, based in Texas. We're based in the heart of the United States. But B, um, every website has a lot of yellow on it in this space. That's true, isn't so it? Yeah. Stand out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it was quite funny. But talking about yellow, I was I was up in in Fort Worth and I was talking to one of the marketing people and I was talking yeah. about Caterpillar and they were yeah. asking which one's Caterpillar, and I said the, the just think of anything yellow basically yeah. as Caterpillar. And they're like, is it? And like, isn't Caterpillar owned by Bobcat? Isn't yeah. that the same thing? I was like, oh my god, the branding that would kill someone at Caterpillar yeah, to hear that. It would, but you know, John Deere machines are, are not green in construction, right? You know, they're a derivative of yellow, and so um, I love it when I see fleets that uh, paint their machines. There's something cool about having a, a black machine or a blue machine or uh, a purple machine, just something outside of that traditional yeah. yellow that stands out. Yeah, we had someone on the podcast recently actually and they they've got like a like a limey color yeah. for their machines the sunbelt yeah no well, this is in australia uh, oh, oh cool yeah but then uh, yeah we drive down the highway and yeah. got, they do rollers mostly and yep. sunbelt's in the same category as well it's very easy to identify the yeah. machines yeah 
uh, rather than just getting like when you buy it from JLG and you get an orange machine and it's just orange. Yep. Or when you buy Genie, it's just blue. So mixing it up a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's some room to be uh, creative and fun on that side in this space. And so we're excited to try to do some of that. Yeah. So maybe Adam, do you want to just talk about how you first got involved in the equipment rental industry and maybe use pre the industry as well, sort of how we've gotten this space? Yeah. Um, I feel like my story is probably a little bit different than uh, a lot of the stories that you hear in this space. And so um, my background is much more uh, kind of technology based. I, I grew up uh, in the Bay Area and then Spokane, Washington. That's the, the farming part of Washington state. It's all wheat fields, um, winter and summer wheat. And then I went back to the Bay Area for um, an undergraduate degree. And I just got very, very lucky that I met uh, my first boss and uh, this guy named Joe Lonsdale started this company called Palantir. Palantir is famous for being the, the software backbone for the CIA and the FBI and uh, all these intelligence organizations. And it was wildly successful. Joe was leaving and starting a new company and he hired me to be the first employee. And so wow. I got to follow somebody who had built a billion dollar business as a 22 year old and I followed him around for four years. And so I, I learned kind of the ins and outs of what it takes to hire, to fire, to gold, to motivate, to build, to deploy technology. And so uh, we built that team. Eventually, we were doing tens of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Um, built a team of 125 there, raised uh, a lot of money. And it was a lot of money then. It still is a lot of money. And that was 10 years ago. Um, and then when I was ready to leave, uh, he supported me in my next thing. And so I built um, a phone-based uh tools so uh, for hiring for small medium sized businesses and so in 2014 the thesis was that um, most people weren't using computers to find uh, hourly wage jobs why because computers are two thousand dollars at the time but they definitely are using their smartphone and they're using mm -hmm. their Android or their Apple device and so we built a, a bunch of tools that would allow you to apply for a job via text message and be evaluated for a job via text message and then book interviews via text message okay. um, we sold that business in 2016 um, you know, a, a lot of fun. Our biggest customers uh, were like nationwide restaurant chains. And so, you know, we'd go in and we'd sit down and we'd eat with the store manager and just eat more junk food than you can imagine. Um, and just a great learning opportunity because I did it for myself then. Um, and then uh, after selling it, uh, ended up at a company called Bolt, B-O-L-T. Um, it's a payments company that helped e-commerce merchants uh, and their customers check out online. Uh, accept payments online. So we do the credit card processing. And then for those merchants, we offered a zero fraud guarantee. And so uh, thousands of merchants signed up, millions of user accounts signed up. Um, I was chief operating officer of that company. Um, we, that company, in my time there, we raised uh, $200 million and subsequently they raised $750 million more. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, it has this chance of kind of being the next PayPal if everything works right. And I say everything works right because it's still a, a technology company that's growing and PayPal is a, an amazing company that they've built over 25 years. Um, and so, you know, those are my backgrounds and experience. And if you tie the string together, it's that um, I've loved starting things in uh, markets that uh, already had incumbent players, but customers were not totally happy. Mm. And so um, I left Bolt uh, ready to go back to do it again. Um, and early in that process of kind of figuring out what it was that I wanted to do again, I met one of my two co-founders, Samir. Um, Samir Shah grew up in Toronto, Canada. His dad uh, is in the trades. He's a structural steel subcontractor, so they do the metal work for big buildings. 
And uh, the first piece of software Smear built in high school was inventory tracking system for his dad's uh, steel inventory. And so this man has been building construction technology for 20 plus years. Um, construction technology kind of wasn't even a category 20 <laughs> years ago, you know? And so, you know, it's one of those serendipitous things that I have this experience in taking things zero to one. Um, and he knows this space really well. And so um, between those two things, we started working together. And, and the other kind of really important thing about Samir's background is that he had built software for the rental management industry, a company called Yard Club. And that company had been acquired by Caterpillar uh, back in, I believe, 2017. And then from 2017 through midway 2020, Samir ran Cat Digital Labs, the innovation department of Caterpillar. Wow. So if you use the Cat app, that was his little baby. If you use the modules on there to understand machine usage via telematics, his baby. Some maintenance modules, some uh, preventative maintenance modules. Like he was deep in the data side of that business uh, for a long time and really pushing it forward on the innovation side. And so Samir and I got along incredibly well. Um, added a third co-founder to mix, one of his former colleagues, Aaron Klein, who was also at Yard Club. So he led the go-to-market motion and deployed all the cat dealerships. And so, again, knows the space really well. And the three of us started working and we said, this space is interesting. And in particular, the resale of used equipment's really interesting because the biggest company is a 60-year-old auction house who is famous in our market for flying people up to their fishing lodge and earning business that way. And if that doesn't scream an opportunity, I don't know what does. Mm. And so we kicked off this process where we talked to dozens and dozens of people on the buy side and the sell side of heavy equipment. Uh, we took a class to become used equipment brokers, not because we didn't know how to sell stuff, but because we want to learn the ins and outs of it. We joined the Association of Equipment Management Professionals. We talked to anybody that would talk to us who started a company in this space. So we talked to you know uh, families, first generation, second generation running equipment shops. We talked to people that were doing uh, display and uh, advertising websites for heavy equipment. We talked to folks in the rental space and we just built this model and, and came up with this idea that kind of fundamentally the way that heavy equipment is bought and sold should look a lot more like Carvana or Carvac or any of these kind of online services where you know exactly what you're getting and the service is outstanding. And so that's what we set out to build and it kind of we think of this as you buy from Boom and Bucket and uh, 99% of the time, it's exactly as described. It comes a little bit early in terms of when it's been delivered and you're happy. And so that's what we've been building over the past year. And we've sold hundreds of these machines now. Um, on the supply side, we work with large construction fleets and rental companies. We work with folks who care deeply about the quality of their supply and have technical infrastructure to support things like preventative maintenance programs. Um, and then on the demand side, we typically help regional and smaller construction companies, both subs and GCs, buy equipment to do necessary jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found is that people love the experience so far. 99, or sorry, 92% of the machines that we've sold are sight unseen, so they buy online and they ship it through our platform hundreds of miles away, um, and then they come back. And so we've had a bunch of customers, even over the course of our first six months, come back to buy more because it's a trusted experience. Um, so it's, uh, that's a little bit of the background, a little bit of where we're going today. Happy to kind of dive yeah. in, dig in on it. What, what's, what's Yard Club? It'd be interesting to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, so Yard Club, um, if you think back in the early 2000s, Uber for X was a concept that everybody was trying to do. And it was everything from Uber for moving companies to uh, Uber for food. Mm. And the kind of, the model for those things are kind of asset light rental companies. I should, and Uber's an asset like taxi company in the sense they don't own the cars. 
And so Yard Club was, if you were a fleet and you had machines that you're underutilizing, so maybe you weren't going to utilize some of them on the next four months, you could put them in a rental pool and rent them out. Okay. And so different companies have since tackled this in different ways, but the sense is that you know machines are not utilized 100%. And for many of uh, those customers, um, if you look at their balance sheet, uh, plants and equipment is the biggest part of the balance sheet. And so why not utilize those machines? Mm. And who has a lot of machines sitting there? In most times, and I say most times because we're in a weird supply and demand environment right now, dealers have a lot of excess inventory that on average takes somewhere close to 180 days to sell. And so why not put some of that used stuff in a rental pool, hence Caterpillar dealers being their biggest customer base and the cat acquiring the company. Interesting, yeah. yeah. I think that even works on like construction sites. I've seen people uh, talk about having like almost a, a shared economy on construction mm-hmm. sites where you can use telematics to, to control who has access to machines and stuff like yeah. that. Like that's definitely like something that I can see the construction side moving towards. Like we know that on this particular job site, we've got three 30 ton excavators yep. and we've got five different contractors. They can log in and then be right. charged when they use the machine. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, that's a little bit like what Equipment Share does uh, in terms of uh, their T3 system that you just log in in the machine. You know, it's keyless, and so that's how you engage it. But mm. if you could deploy that technology to a broader fleet, that's an amazing uh, mm. kind of idea. That it's just that these machines are so expensive, and you know, well-run companies have high utilization rates, but it's really hard to hard to get high utilization rates. Yeah. Uh, so, so you've been involved in so many startups, yeah. at, even just at a very young age. Yeah. Like, is that like, what's it like when you said you started at 22, employee number number two? Did you say or number number one? Uh, I accepted my offer as number one, and when I got there, there was three people ahead of me because I had to graduate <laughs> okay. college. Yeah. Like, what's it like being like that early on in a company? It must it must be like a lot of chaos here, like a lot of fast moving things. Like, like talk me through that that experience. It is, you know. So I've been exposed to this a lot with myself, and I, I've uh, have a lot of friends that have started things as well. And um, the successful ones in their first two years, it looks like you're sprinting. And you're sprinting for a few different reasons. One, uh, if you stop, you die. Just nobody cares. You don't have enough customers that'll even care if you just disappeared uh, Mm -hmm. in your first year of being a company. And so it's all about adding momentum uh, and beating inertia in the business. And the, the kind of great companies end up having a vision of what they need to accomplish. And that vision is not six months from now, it's what are we working towards in this industry that's informed by making our customers successful. And so if you have that vision and you have folks that know how to sprint, and what I mean by sprinting, I mean hard work, um, you end up making yourself successful. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think people look at and they say, oh, you know, startup success is luck. Some of it is certainly luck, but I guarantee that the luck is manufactured by hard work. And so those early days, I think back fondly on them, you know, particularly before I had, uh, you know, a lot of responsibilities outside of work. But, you know, it was 10 of us in a, in a you know, crappy office, uh, you know, crap uh, furniture from Ikea, uh, working to make customers happy. Um, and every successful place that I've been, it's been working to make customers happy and doing whatever it took to get in the room with those customers and understanding their problems deeply and then figuring out how to come back as fast as possible with a solution to those things. Mm. And so it's fun. It's teamwork. It's everybody rowing the same direction. It's no egos because, you know, at the end of the day, like it's been usually me taking out the trash uh, for the team or ordering food or like, you know, all the little things that just 
you end up being you know focused around this one goal. It's a lot like team sports in that regard. And then obviously recruiting and trying to build yeah. teams is, is a big component of, of startups as well. So when you when you want to start growing and bringing the right people on, how yeah. do you sort of manage that side? Yeah. Um, every company has you know a, a different philosophy around hiring, and there's not one that always works for everybody. Um, the early uh, Adapar team, so that was my first company that I was at. Uh, of the first 20 employees, uh, subsequently, they've started two billion dollar companies. One went public at a ten billion dollar valuation. The other one sold to a large insurance company at a two and a half billion dollar valuation. Uh, the quality bar in terms of what we looked for was uh, exceptional, and the only way you hire people that are exceptional is that you put in the work in the hiring process. And so, what that means is that uh, you, as a founder, or you as a founding team, or you as leaders, sit down and you say, "What do we value?" Uh, in our employee base. And so we have a set of values for boomies, for example, that's what we call boom and bucket employees. And we rigorously evaluate against that. So that's step one. Step two is that we run a process called who, uh, who in the sense of who are we looking for type thing. And uh, we spend an inordinate amount of time upfront defining the thing that that person will do. And we do that because we wanna find the best person for that job. And what that means is that we think about if we get the best person, what does their scorecard look like in terms of their performance plan or their uh, grading system at the first six months in their first year? And then we find the person that will get uh, 100% or all A's or fives out of fives in that scorecard. And then we do everything possible to hire them. Um, and what that means is that uh, on the phone screen and the first steps of the interview process, you end up talking to a very wide funnel and you put in the work like my uh partner elisa will tell you that uh oftentimes particularly in the early stages of company building my weekends are talking to candidates mm. and it's because there's no shortcut to finding good people and um, if you're looking for good talent the difference between good and great in terms of work output is wide but the difference in terms of uh the evaluation criteria is small yeah and so it's about uncovering those little things. Um, my favorite little thing uh, is pretty simple. Uh, I like somebody that has a little bit of sparkle. And it's, uh, it's one of those things, it's that you meet somebody who's intellectually curious, who went the extra mile for a customer, who on a, a Friday night responded to the email. Mm. And it's just that little bit of something that when you're building a business that's customer obsessed, um, that little tiny bit at the end is the part that ends up mattering. And mm. so like, I look for those signals of like kind of that, that extra effort type stuff. Yeah, and I think it's almost like, I like how you said like customer obsessed because yeah. you almost need someone that when something goes wrong, like you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed yeah. and, and, and you, you take it to heart. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, well, yep, we, the delivery was late. Well, yeah. I guess we'll get it right, right next time. It's like, oh, let's let's break this apart. Yeah. Why why was it late? Yeah. Let, let's explain this internally and make sure it never happens again. It's that that's that knot in your stomach when something doesn't go right, and it's a personal affront because you knew that you could make it right, and now you got to figure out how it never happens again. And so you're you're absolutely right. Like we run this process. Uh, it's a five wire root cause analysis, which is 
why did this thing fail? Okay, why you said, oh, we didn't uh, have the customer sign the paperwork. Why didn't we have the, sign, the customer sign the paperwork? Oh, it wasn't built in the checkout flow. Why wasn't it built in the checkout flow? Because we didn't uh, think about it. Why didn't we think about it? Because we didn't spec appropriately. Sure. Now we spec appropriately. You know, we're five questions away from that kind of small yeah. little failure. And then you never have to deal with the problem again. Yeah, I feel like so many times you get swept under the rug and it just happens over and over and over again. And they're the companies that really struggle with like true customer experience. Yes, yeah. Because customers notice that shit. Customers notice if you mess up the same thing twice. Mm. And uh, I guarantee a competitor doesn't mess up the same thing twice. Yeah, it's, it's almost yeah, even like if machine breaks down, Yeah. it's like you want even the service techs to be uber passionate Mm -hmm. to get that machine up and running as fast as possible or to organize and say, look, I can't fix this in two hours or 30 minutes. We need to get a a replacement machine out as fast as possible. And then the person that is working with that team gets the next machine ready. And it's all about a team effort as well. So you can't have an individual contributor solving all the problems. It's everyone sort of working in harmony. Exactly. And then when we think about the great companies in our spaces, we think about that as, a, as a, a mesh of people working together to provide customer service. You know, you certainly might have your account manager, but they have their drivers, they have their service techs, they have their call centers, they have mm-hmm. everybody behind them that delivers this exceptional experience. And so like, I, I read a lot about United Rentals in the early days and kind of two key things that uh, they highlight as success for that company. One, a strong IT backbone, so software, and two, um, great compensation philosophies for their teams. But the first one, the IT system, allows everybody to get on the same page about how they're servicing the customer. Mm. Yeah, well, everything's paper-based or it's, uh, it's on whiteboards yep. or it's in someone's head or a spreadsheet or it's in multiple systems. You can almost make up the results. Yes. And next minute, you've got someone that's trying to not fudge the numbers, but... but paint their own narrative rather than having an analytical response to yeah. say these are the KPIs and metrics that are actually happening yeah. right now. I mean the the rental industry is at a really interesting place because you have somebody like uh, Equipment Share in the US who their, their core thesis was building the technology backbone and then building a business around that and it'll be interesting to see how that develops over a few years because there's no hiding from data. The machine works or it doesn't. Maintenance was done or it wasn't done. It was on time or it wasn't. And so, you know, if that kind of theory plays out, like, you know, 10 years from now, they should be one of the best in the space. I don't know if they will be, and I don't know the team well enough to, you know, kind of comment, but they're really taking that approach or there's no wiggle room because the data is something. The data says, you know, what the data says. Yeah. And so being involved in so many yeah. startups, like burnout must be a factor yeah. as well. If, you, if, you're, if you are customer obsessed, yeah. When you go home, you're constantly thinking about like what the next thing is that you're working on. Yeah. Have you seen burnout happen a lot within companies? How have you managed burnout personally? Like, can you talk on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, personally, in the past ten years, I've been twenty pounds heavier and twenty pounds lighter. Um, neither one was healthy, and they were unhealthy for various reasons. And this is almost all stress, which is burnout. Um, in 2016, uh, I was selling uh, my first company and I got shingles. Shingles is a, a chicken pox, but it usually happens when you're 60 or 70 years old. Oh my God. My doctor said it's stress related. And you know, I had a hives for weeks, all because of the stress. Um, 
at, at Bolt, my, my last company, I, I got mono um, during a relatively intense fundraising time. And I had two things I could do in my life. I could work intensely for a small period of time and sleep. And, you know, these are the things that, like, it's hard. And that, that burnout is all because the balance is wrong in my life at the time. And so, um, you know, athletes do this. They push themselves incredibly hard. I, I think people that are driven do that as well. And you can do that, and you can do that for a fixed period of time, but nobody can sprint through a marathon. And so I think about it that way now, that if you're going to sprint through a marathon, it better be a relay race. <laughs> not, not, you better not be the only runner. And so I, I go through intense periods of time now in my work life, and then I pull back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on average, the tempo is higher uh than normal and i probably am more productive but i have to have that balance otherwise i end up in those positions that i talked about and so the early signs of burnout for me are that um i stop exercising because i think i need that time for other stuff uh i stop preparing food for myself and i start taking uh, getting takeout again because i want that time to do other things and then a few weeks later i find that i'm lethargic i'm a little crankier I get uh, some breakouts or a little acne or something like that. Uh, and then I just realized, oh shit, didn't take care of myself for a few <laughs> weeks. Um, and so th- there's no hard and fast rule about how to hand- handle burnout besides as you get older, you get better at managing yourself and you better be good at it by the time you're committing to big things. Mm. Cause yeah, if, you, if you're building up a company, any company and you're not managing that, that burnout, yeah. The, you're, you're thinking you're trying to do the right thing yep. and then you might be out of work for a month. Totally. And then that can completely ruin the company. Yep. Uh, those little things can really make a big difference. Well, and I mean, leadership is 90% showing up. It's how your team sees you engaged. It's do I respond to emails quickly? Do they see me following up the customers quickly? Do they see me giving a damn when something breaks? And so if there's times in my life where, you know, I'm on one spectrum of the kind of hard work sprinting to hard side, it usually means that some of those things that I'm responsible for internally are going to slip. And the, the kind of secret now versus five years ago in terms of my maturity or in terms of our maturity is uh, I communicate that. I just tell the team, like, I am doing this thing and I'm intensely focused on it. And these are the things that are going to slip. I need to shift these areas of responsibility so they don't slip. Mm. And that's, um, it takes a little while to learn how to do that because you want to be responsible for all the things that you've owned. You know, if you're the CEO and you're in charge of hiring, firing, fundraising, strategy, uh, goals, metrics, you know, it's a big laundry list. And then at the end of the day, you got your personal relationships, your wife, your partner, your kids, your pets, your body. (laughs) Yeah. You can't do it all. And so, you know, communicate about what you're not going to be doing and be very clear about it. And then when you do have all those things and you're a senior yeah. leader, like time management becomes yeah. really, really important. I'm assuming in this, in this spectrum, like mm-hmm. I always think about someone like Elon Musk. It's like, where does he get the time in the day to work yeah. on so many projects? Yeah. And it's because he needs to delegate and trust and that sort of stuff. Like, so how, how do you manage that time yeah. side of things? Elon's got Gwen Shotwell. She runs SpaceX. It's a $125 billion business and um, she's built it and it's amazing. And, you know, Elon is a central nexus for a business like that. And then, uh, you know, we've seen some of these leaked emails. I need you to deal with this, fix it in this way. And he delegates and that's it. And, 
you know, the sooner that you learn to trust your team, the sooner you are in a better spot. And when I say you, I mean all of you in that company. Mm. That if you keep and hold on to those things for too long, your team's going to resent you and quality is going to suffer. And so the kind of goal in terms of uh, pushing that to people is to give them enough rope to hang themselves but not the company. And I guarantee if you have hired good people, they'll thrive in that environment. They mm. want to be on the, the threshold of what's hard for them. So give them a little bit more. Yeah. Ask for a little bit more. And yeah. people rise to the occasion. And then, yeah, when they, when they get the sense of them achieving something, that turns them into wanting to do more as well. Totally. Like, like if you take the, yeah. the fire from someone and then, yeah. and then you tell them how to do it, like you're, not, you're just a puppet then. Yes. Yep. Um, and man, watching somebody uh, achieve something that they thought was too hard initially, achieve it and be ready to level up quickly, mm. that's how you take someone who's good and they become absolutely great. And you change the trajectory of their career. That's how you take a salesperson, you give them more responsibility and suddenly they're an action-wide account manager because you gave them a little bit more and they crush it. But incrementalism in terms of uh, management responsibility or in terms of additional responsibility is a key on that one. Mm. Yeah, and I think even like when I look at myself, like yeah. I remember when I was working at an ERP provider, I, uh, the CEO at the time mm -hmm. basically asked me, I want you to demo to this large company. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know all the functions. Yeah. And he was like, uh -huh. you'll figure it out. Yeah. And it's like just those little things that he sort of threw over the fence and said like, you're probably gonna stuff it up. Yeah. But it's all right. Yeah. Like stuff it up, learn from it and grow from there. Like those mistakes are what really make people better. And, and like, like you've made plenty of mistakes along the way a lot yes yeah, yeah. i'm not offended by you saying that and you don't even know my mistakes yeah like everyone makes mistakes but yeah. it's like it's not the mistakes that make you it's like how you bounce back from those mistakes yes and i mean and the the honesty to admit when it was a mistake you know a customer demo no customer is going to be upset if you took a wrong turn in the software say oops clicked over here this is a new module i haven't explored it yet but if you brush it under it and say like, or, or wing it or try yeah, and say yes to everything yeah th then they're gonna be <laughs> upset and so hey yep i'm learning as we go right here and it's totally fine yeah even if it's like a machine yeah. like is this compliant to be on a job site yeah. yes yes it is and you're lying yeah <laughs> it's gonna catch up to you pretty quickly yes oh yeah. that sort of stuff so uh, yeah, you can't have too much ego yeah there definitely got to be humble so then so working through employing and building teams up, yeah. uh, the boom and bucket side of it. So to yeah. talk to me about how that was actually sort of started. Like, was it starting with a team? Was it fundraising? Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, you did a lot of interviews with people. Like, let yeah. me talk about the early days of boom and bucket. Yeah. So um, in 2021, if you were selling something on Craigslist in the Bay Area, a piece of heavy equipment, I probably tried calling you. And I definitely shot you an email. And some of those folks eventually gave us machines to sell and because they were tired of people like me calling them <laughs> and bothering them about it. And then we went through the process and, you know, for this first machine, and I vividly remember it, it was a John Deere 410K, so a, a mid-sized backhoe. Um, and we had 55 leads for it. Three people tried scamming us. They wanted to give us cashier's checks and pick up the machine tomorrow. Um, we had a bunch of lowball offers. The machine, I think, was listed at 55K, and I remember one guy called me and said, well, you take 25K for it, and I said, like, no, that's wild. That's a 50% less, and he said, well, hopes and prayers. I got to try, um, and we went through this process and just realized that, man, like, this is painful, 
And imagine if you're trying to field this well, you know, you're on the job site, your cell phone's ringing with these people, you know, offering you 50% lesser a machine, um, and you're trying to do your old business. And so we started really thinking about what does it mean um, to make the, supp the, the supply side, so the seller of a machine happy. And people like Ritchie Brothers because they drop off their machine and they're done. But what they don't like is that traditionally it's a wholesale auction market, and so you get low price realization. Dealers go there to buy inventory for their lots and mark it up. Mm. And so a seller, you're leaving maybe 20% on the table. Um, and we said, there's gotta be a better way. And so um, we didn't raise money. Uh, we didn't hire a team. The three of us uh, instead uh, built a, a very simple web experience to showcase the quality of the machines that we were listing. And th that's deep uh, expertise around critical wear parts. So great photos, great videos. Um, we do a mechanical inspection for these machines where, you know, it's not just the function did it turn on, turn off, but, you know, was there a blow by on the engine, for example? Um, do the hydraulics look good? They operate well. Um, and again, if you look at the common things online, I've been to machinery traders so many times where uh their customers and so nothing against machinery trader i think it's a great website but their customers say well-maintained machine ready to work and then you go on site to inspect one of those machines and it's never been maintained properly and it's not ready to work and so we just wanted to figure out how to avoid that and what we found is that by doing a little bit more work up front and accurately assessing these machines we can get to the place where people have trust in what they're buying and so we started doing this all manually and uh, the technology was, you know, kind of off the shelf components. And then we started kind of figuring out what to automate and what to automate and what to automate and build more software for. In February of 2022, so this year, um, we moved from kind of those off the shelf components to something that we'd built. And in between those two times, we'd raised a little bit of money and we built a team. Um, now, if you look at the boomandbucket.com website, you'll see all that marketplace technology is ours. Somebody in the field usually uses our field inspection app to inspect a machine, goes through a checklist process, that checklist flows to our website, and then you can see, we, we summarize as what's great about this machine and what needs work. And that what needs work part is the part that people care about mm. because it's, is this gonna be a 5K fix, $500 fix, or a $50 fix? And nobody cares if they know that one of those big expensive fixes is gonna come up because they can uh, price appropriately when they buy it but what they deeply care about is if that is a surprise. And so kind of the, the motto should be no surprises on that regard. And that's mm. what it's been. We've had a bunch of happy customers on that side. And so what's the typical, like let's say that I own a machine, I've got yep. a rental business, I, I wanna, wanna offload it and maybe get a new machine in and I wanna try and get the best price out there. Um, there's a couple things wrong with it, but nothing, like it still operates perfectly. Yep. Am I contacting a rep at Boom and yeah. Bucket? Am I going through a website? Like, what's that experience for me? It depends on the size of your company. Let's say that you have, you know, two or three branches and you're regional. Uh, we probably have an account manager that you'd work with. And then if you're selling a kind of one or two machines at a time, we have a flow built for that. If you are kind of greater scale and you have a, a ERP system and you have a fleet management system for the maintenance records and things like that, there's a different flow and we'd integrate with that technology on your side. That one, um, you'd usually work with somebody senior on a kind of nationwide level. Um, either way, what's gonna happen is that uh, the data is gonna flow from your systems to ours. We're gonna get all the, the maintenance history that we can, all the telematic data that we can, um, oil analysis if you have it. We're gonna put that into uh, our system and then out's gonna come a beautiful listing where somebody can accurately understand the machine quality and condition. 
And the net result for me is that we're going to do all the work. The machine's going to stay in your yard. You don't even have to transport it. Um, and then we're going to get you something closer to retail price as opposed to, you know, sending it to your local auction and getting the wholesale auction price. Mm. And so net net, uh, your life is a little bit easier because you don't have to sell it and you get more money back in your pocket. And then let's, I'll flip the seat. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm looking for that machine to yeah. buy. I, I need to add that, that new, uh, the used machine to my fleet. How do I buy that machine? Like what's the process? Yep. Our rule is pretty simple on this. We don't want to make you do things you're uncomfortable with. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we, we've uh, seen a bunch of websites that like, there's one that I'm imagining in my head right now, I won't name them. Um, they customize like a Shopify website and you can click here to buy a machine, but there's two pictures and they just have the specifications of the machine and the hours. There's no way you're gonna click there to buy it. <laughs> and so what we have, you can talk to a sales rep. Like we have machine experts inside that you can call to walk you through the sales process. Um, on the website, you can find pictures, inspection reports, oil analysis, if it exists for the machine, um, what's great, what's not, all the specifications, prior use, lean check, um, star rating for the machine, uh, and an operating video. So you can get everything you need to make a decision, um, but we found that uh, before you wire us $100,000 for a machine, you usually wanna to talk to a person. So we're happy to talk. We'll prepare the bill of sale for you, the wire instructions, we'll close it. Um, we have a, a handful of shipping companies that will bid uh, to give you the best price for shipping. Uh, we will arrange the logistics. The machine will show up at your place of business. And so, you know, that process, um, oftentimes, if you think about, you know, going to auction yard, you go to the auction yard, you have your own financing, so you're pre-approved, you've gone to your local bank or credit union or something like that. And then you have 48 hours to pick up the machine after the auction, and oftentimes you gotta go and scramble and get a, a shipper. Mm. We'll do all that all for you. If you need financing, we'll hold your hand. We've got partners that fit different credit boxes. And the whole goal of this is that because we're helping on each part of the process, everything's smoother. The shipping company and the seller know what's happening. Mm. You know what's happening with the shipper. The financing company's in the loop with both sides. And so this whole process that can be, you know, a bunch of moving pieces ends up that you just talk to your account rep, the machine ends up at your place of business. Yeah. Yeah, it seems almost like you're just providing that ease of service, giving them that, being that trusted advisor on mm -hmm. the, giving you a report to say, yes, we yeah. know that this machine is great in these areas and not great in potentially in these areas. Yeah. And if someone wants to learn more, can yeah. they go visit the machine? Like what's the typical process? Because you said 93% yep. of people have bought without actually seeing yeah. the machine. Yeah, and some people want to see it. And that's totally fine with us. What we ask, though, is that we don't like tire kickers. Uh, I'm sure you don't like tire kickers when you're selling something. And so a small deposit is usually necessary, totally refundable. Um, but great, if you like the machine, you already know our wire instructions, close it, pick it up the next day. Yeah. Um, and so we're happy to arrange for that. Um, what people have found is that usually we have all the information they're looking for anyways. Uh, they just haven't looked through all the photos, for example, or haven't downloaded an inspection report. And so we can usually, usually walk them through those things and they can usually be comfortable with it online. And then transporting the machine. Yep. Is that part of the sale? It is. And so we don't make any money out for that, quite frankly. We do it as a service for our customers. And so um, shipping, particularly larger machines, uh, everybody that does it knows that it can be a pain and there's some expertise required. And so if you're not in the business of always shipping these things, we can be your expert on that side. So we'll get the dimensions, we'll get the permits, we'll work with the, uh, the shippers, um, we'll give you status updates along the way. Um, 
you pay the shipper on that side, but we'll coordinate everything for you to make you happy. Mm. Yeah, it seems like you, you're really trying to like break down all the barriers yeah. for trying to get equipment. Yep. And, and so in terms of scale, uh, you mentioned the smaller end. Um, are you working with any of the larger national companies? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, there's thousands of rental companies in the U.S. I have the ARA handbook on my desk. It's, uh, you know, this thick uh, on that side of potential rent, rep, rental companies and branches. Um, we worked with Sunstate and we're working with Sunstate uh, as a preeminent customer. And then two of the other top 10 companies are currently in like specking pilots with us. And the, the goal is to provide the same level of service there. It's that, you know, remarketing is a challenge. It's a sprint at the end of the year. Having a technology technology first partner is meaningful for these businesses um, because it lessens the load on their uh, teams and their remarketing teams and their sales teams at the end of the year. And then, you know, the important upside is that um, they get a fair price for the machines. Mm. And I say fair price, like, you know, there's the bottom of the barrel price, which means that it wasn't marketed well. And there's the, you know, unicorn retail price that says, hey, this guy has a wallet that's too full and needs something <laughs> tomorrow. Their fair price is somewhere in between those two sure. things. And yeah. that's what we want to clear every single time that if we've done a good job pricing equipment, both sides are happy. Um, and so we provide that as a service for these large folks. And I can just imagine like yeah. the larger you get and the more enterprise deals yeah. you work with, like, and you've integrated with these ERP systems, yep. it streams line the processes even more. That's it. I think of this more as a technology challenge over time than a pure people and process challenge, but I'm not afraid to the people in the process stuff. And just to, you know, compare this and contrast this with some of the other kind of technology standards in the space is that, you know, cat has vision link, for example, and they want you to put all your non cat gear on there. And then you know what happens? Your cat rep calls you and tells you that they could sell you an excavator to replace your Komatsu. Um, that's not the way that we think about this. We think about it as that we're integrating with your systems to leverage and empower you, not for us to upsell and cross sell and be annoying salespeople there. Mm. And so these technology integrations end up empowering the businesses as opposed to being, uh, you know, something that's an annoyance. And then scale-wise, we're talking all of North America, just the U.S., yeah. like where, where are you sort of based at the moment? Yeah, so we, we started in California, um, in particular California Dynamics in the sense of CARB. Um, so California Air Resources Board uh, limits certain types of emissions. And so um, some machines have to be sold outside of California. So there's a natural flow of those machines out of California. So there's a little bit of supply there. We've shipped machines from the Los Angeles region as far west you thought LA was west to Hawaii and then all the way to New Jersey. And so kind of nationwide in terms of where the buyers are. And then on the supply side, uh, we work with some large national accounts. And so there's equipment spread all over the west and the south of the United States. Um, and then uh, we have reps in the Inland Empire, which is uh, east of LA, Los Angeles County, and then uh, Nevada right now. Yeah, no, I, I can see it really developing into something bigger. And then obviously, eventually, there could be some more stuff overseas, yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a national business, uh, or sorry, international business eventually. Um, the scope and scale of some of these things are just incredible. And the, the life of a machine, if you're thinking about a, a big bulldozer, it's, you know, it's incredible. Mm. We just don't know what happens when it gets on a ship. <laughs> yeah, because I guess people often sell things overseas and they yeah. sell it for even a lower price. Yeah. So I think the opportunity that Boom and Bucket has in that space is to try and increase the, the sale value for things that are overseas as well. Yeah, there's a discovery challenge uh, for a lot of that stuff as well. Like, you know, there's the international brokering business. Um, 
there's not a lot of transparency to it. Um, and so I think there's, you know, things that we can do to help people find and discover uh, the equipment that they need. Mm, definitely. All right, well, let's learn a little bit more about Adam yeah. as well. So we're talking about Boom Bucket quite a lot. So maybe uh, you've had a lot of uh, experience in startups and businesses and acquisitions and whatnot. So yeah. who are some people that have been a big influential um, piece within you as maybe a mentor yeah. throughout your career? I've just been really lucky that uh, I've worked with like exceptional people. And yeah, I think people, when they think of mentors, they think of people that are older and wiser. And I don't think that's always the case. Like I've worked with people that are younger my age that are just exceptional. And they're exceptional in the thing that they're great at. And I've tried to just pick up a little bit of what they do along the way each mm -hmm. time there. And so like in the construction space, for example, you know, really lucky to have met uh, Darren Bechtel pretty early in my journey in this space, for example. Um, Darren, for those that don't know, is part of the Bechtel family. Um, the Bechtels are famous for being one of the largest private construction companies in the world. Uh, they built Hoover Dam. Uh, it was one of their largest projects. They built the majority of the pipelines uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, I got pretty lucky in terms of when I started working in this industry, I met a guy named Darren Bechtel. Um, Darren runs a venture fund called Brick and Mortar. But if you recognize the last name, you've recognized it from uh, the men who built America, basically. They built Hoover Dam, built many of the largest infrastructure projects. They built most of the oil pipelines in the Middle East and many of the refineries. And so he's got just multiple generations of knowledge about how this space operates and how it works. And so, you know, he's been a wealth of information on that side. In terms of company building, uh, I've been exposed to a bunch of great board members and a bunch of great entrepreneurs along the way. Um, if I name one, uh, the others, uh, you know, will be jealous on that side. But I'm forever thankful for those folks that, you know, sat me down when I asked, you know, naive questions. You know, um, you know, they sat down and said, here's why we're doing this. And um, I'm grateful for those folks that spent time and, um, you know, listened to me and, you know, uh, gave me the respect when I was younger to kind of uh, answer those things. Um, the other thing that I just mentioned, the, the joy of working with excellent co like co-workers and peers there is that I learned something from our team every single day. We have folks that uh, have led marketing for huge companies and uh, we have founders on our team. So like outside of our founding team, we've hired people that have started and sold companies before. And there's just always something that somebody's bringing to the table. Like our head of engineering, like he loves to explain things and I love to learn. And like, it, it's a good mix in that regard. So if you're intellectually curious and you find good communicators, you're just always learning mm. and getting those lessons from somebody. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, so what do you think has been the biggest challenge you've faced over your career so far? I mean, the, the most painful times is when we, we made errors in judgment that affected people. And I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but when I think about the things that um, I always wish I would have done better, it's always when it had affected somebody else. And like, you know, I, I've had to lay people off, I've had to fire people, I, I've made the wrong hires. And 99% of that is because I did something wrong, not because they did something wrong. You know, I was too ambitious with what I thought we could do from growth. And then we had to let people go. And you know, we haven't done that boom and bucket, but I've done that in previous jobs and it's incredibly painful. I anchored myself on one thing that somebody was great at and I didn't take into the full picture of their skill set, and then they didn't have the skill set to do the job. You could easily say, hey, this person's not good enough. That's not it. It's that I didn't evaluate them well for the thing that they needed to do and I didn't put them in a position to win. And so the hardest things have always been the things that affect people there. And I, I think that's 
you know, it's the part that kind of gnaws at you. You know, it's mm. the part that, you know, you make this uh, judgment and then six months later, you know, you got to realize that you were really wrong. And the responsible thing is to face those things and to admit that and to have an honest conversation with that person and say, hey, I've made a mistake. You know, this thing that we hired you to do is you're not capable of it. There's two outcomes here. Either we resize the role or we help you find the next best role. Um, and so those have always been the most challenging things on my side. You know, the, the other things are, I think of them, some people might think of them as challenging, but I think of them as fun. It's the hard work stuff. And, you know, it's the late nights, it's the early mornings, it's the red eyes to New York to go meet with an important customer, an important investor. Um, I think that those will be the things that I end up talking about uh, 20 or 30 years from now is, you know, those were probably the fun things, even though they were challenging. Mm. But the people ones will be the ones that I, I aspire to learn from every single time and that I've always uh, kind of carried with a deep sense of like uh, responsibility on that yeah. side. And then if you could give advice yeah. to young Adam, yeah, what would you say to him? <laughs> um, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Like, I think for the first half of my career, I was less assertive than I should have been. And particularly when it came to strategic decisions that I had um, strong internal conviction about strategy. And when I mean about strategy, I mean it's, it's company direction type stuff, but I didn't always have the self-confidence to um, really fight for those strategic decisions. And in a few cases, I wish I would have because uh, they would have changed the trajectory of a business or a company or a team in those cases. Um, since then, I, I, I've kind of never backed down from a strategic uh, conversation, but strategy is hard because compared to tactics, tactics, you and I do this thing today, we see the results tomorrow. We make uh, 100 outbound calls, we know that 10 people are gonna be interested. But strategy, shit, that takes time. And that's mm. like the hard thing is that in order to feel like you're good at strategy, you've gotta get cycles and cycles are just years. And so um, I would encourage young Adam to lean into that. Like your, your intuition was right and kind of your gut was right. And so just to trust the gut on that mm. side. And then so when you are pushing for something yeah. and someone was saying, no, I don't yeah. agree or that's not the right decision yeah. and you're pushing back, like how have you counteracted that? Have you been planning more in yeah. your communication or how have you sort of managed that? Yeah, so there's two things. One, you know, a lot of strategy decisions are done as a small group and you can kind of, you can game the conversation, but I don't think that's right. I think you should uh, be closest to the data and closest to the things that you are seeing and figure out how to communicate those. And so like from a sales strategy standpoint, for example, like uh, I used to have a head of RevOps report to me. So the person in charge of the revenue operations, which is seeing everything. And so we'd spend a lot of time thinking about sales strategy. And when we wanted to change something, the way that we effectively did it with the executive team was we brought data to it. And so we said, here's what we're seeing in these segments, this is working. Here's what we're seeing in this, these segments, this is really working we want to go from here to here. And so you're welcome to investigate. These are the spreadsheets, these are the tools, this is the presentation we put together. I'd love for you guys to digest this, come to your own conclusions, and then let's talk about it. And by bringing people with us through that story, we had much better conversations than mm -hmm. when uh, I was young and bullheaded and said, we need to fix this, we need to change it, here's what we need to do. Yeah. And so there's a bit of a patience and 
bringing people along with those challenging strategic uh, decisions, where if you bring them to the same journey that you've already had internally, they'll get there eventually, provided that you have shared contacts, you know, smart people, that type of thing. Um, and then the kind of the, the other thing that I learned from that is you're going to make a change. It's going to affect a lot of people. And you got to figure out how to communicate that to the team. And nobody likes it when things are sugar-coated. Um, they like it when you explain and bring people through the exact same thing that I saw. And so the same thing that I would do as a small team, we'd figure out how to package and bring to a larger team. And so we'd expose a larger team to exactly our decision-making process and say, here's what we saw. Here's uh, where we're going as a company. Here's why this new thing gets us to this thing better and faster and you know more effectively. And 99% of the time, people would get it, even if they were impacted, because we shared the way that we were thinking about it. Just nobody likes being told what to do. Yeah. And so if you can bring them with you and the decision is partially theirs, or at least they understand it, they'll be a lot happier. It's almost like... Uh, giving advice to people yeah. like if you give advice to people like uh-huh. they're going to always have their guard up right? yeah. but if you share experiences uh-huh. it's a completely different sort of dynamic because you're letting the person come to their conclusion on their own totally it's asking questions thing right the best therapist doesn't uh, you know tell you what to do they ask you questions and you realize it mm. and that's what you want to be in terms of that type of leadership and then so over all those years how do you now define success I mean, it's a, it's a good question is like our ambitions are big. Like I want to build an epic company here. Like there's a reason why, you know, I'm spending my time here and it's not for shits and giggles. Um, but success for us at, at different stages, it's different things. And so we were incredibly happy when we sold our first hundred machines. That's super cool. And we did that in a very short period of time. Um, I'll be happy when we sell a thousand then 10,000 and then, you know, a hundred thousand and then we'll be doing a hundred thousand in a year and then that'll be amazing. Um, but the milestones along the way are to be celebrated, but you know, how do we define success is that, um, you know, along the way I want happy customers. Like if we've done well for our sellers and our buyers are happy, things will naturally work. Um, these businesses have decent economics as long as you do well by the customer that when you don't do well by the customers that when things start to sh- uh, suffer. And so in our case, the thing that I care about, CSAT score is pretty simple. Customer satisfaction, we're 9.2 out of 10 on our, our first uh, few hundred transactions. It's happy customers. Mm. Happy customers bring more customers. They tell people. They agree to do videos with us. Like, that's what we care about. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an important thing as well. We, I had someone on a podcast recently from a higher company, mm. a rental business, that was talking about yeah, um, satisfaction surveys yep. after every rental. Yeah, I feel like more people should be doing these. Yes. Like, like how, how can you make decisions if you don't have the data? Yeah, and and it's a it's a simple um, it's a simple mechanic that you can implement through text message or email or whatever it is. Yep, and and then if they don't respond, then okay, we'll try and find out why they're not responding. Is it going to spam? Yep, as it is the other is the question too complicated or too long yeah but those little things can can shape your direction of your company it's a very simple thing to implement totally but quick feedback loops were you happy with your last experience one through ten ten great what was great five what could we do better that's it that's easy mm. now you've got the tools as a manager to lead yeah that's no, amazing i love that all right. all right adam well thank you for hosting me in your house yeah exactly <laughs> thank you for coming to texas and thank you for coming on the rental journal podcast yeah i appreciate it thank you for supporting us and excited to see you build the audience here i appreciate it